This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 15 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, a sobering interview with the head of a 50-year-old global crisis support organization. An innovative partnership struck to prepare for the infection wave that's expected to hit South Africa soon. We have a frank account from a doctor treating COVID-19 patients in New York. There's an update on UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and how the pandemic is not only changing the world of work, but medicine too. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Johns Hopkins University's COVID-19 map shows that the front line in the war against the virus is shifting from Europe to the United States, whose infections have surpassed 400,000 of a global total of just under 1.5 million. Mortalities in the U.S. have risen above 13,000. Worse is feared there, as the American mortality rate is at 4 per 100,000 population, far below the worst-hit nation, Spain, which is at over 30 and Italy at 28. On this measure, Belgium, France and the Netherlands are all well into double figures with the UK at 9.28 deaths per 100,000. China, which moved quickly to isolate the infected cases and enforce social distancing, appears to have won its battle with the source city of Wuhan reopening for business. China's death rate was confined to a modest 0.24 per 100,000. While South Africa's COVID-19 infections continue to surprise on the downside, there are concerns about the mini-pandemic at St. Augustine's Hospital in Durban, where 66 people have tested positive, 48 of them staff. Three of the country's 13 deaths were at the hospital, parts of which is now likely to be closed down for a fumigation process. The Motsepi Foundation, Business for South Africa and the Solidarity Fund have secured 200,000 three-ply masks, 100,000 KN95 masks, sterile gloves and surgical masks for frontline health workers. The stock has been distributed around the country and is immediately available for use in the public healthcare sector. A statement issued to shareholders Wednesday by Oil from Coal and Chemicals Group Sassel says that due to the lockdown-instilled collapse of demand for petrol, the company and its partner Total have suspended production at the Natref refinery. Sassel has also cut production of Synfuels at its Secunda plant by 25% and expects its sales of petrol and diesel to drop by the equivalent of around 7 million barrels this year. That's about 15% of annual output. Social media posts have landed South Africa's Minister of Communications and Digital Technologies, Stella Ndabeni Abrahams, in hot water. They showed her lunching with former Deputy Higher Education Minister Mdudusi Mnanana. Ndabeni Abrahams was suspended for two months Wednesday, one of them without pay. She also issued a public apology. The PIC led to a Twitter uproar with the errant Cabinet Minister being summonsed by President Cyril Ramaphosa, who found no extenuating circumstances. A statement from his office reiterated 
that no South African is exempt from the lockdown regulations. Here's Ramaphosa's spokesperson, Kusela Diko. The President has considered the allegations that uh, Minister Ndabini Abrahams uh, violated the lockdown regulations. This follows revelations that uh, the Minister had visited a friend who hosted a lunch in contravention of the regulations. The President strongly believes that no one, including the Minister, is above the law, and therefore the law should be allowed to take its course. The Minister must face the same consequences as everyone else in this country for violating the rules that have been set for all of us. The President summoned the Minister on Tuesday 7th of April where he reprimanded her and directed her to deliver a public apology to the nation. He says that as a member of a national executive she is held to an even higher standard than ordinary members of the public and therefore he will also be placing her on special leave for a period of two months. One month of this will be unpaid. The minister in the presidency, Jackson Tembo has been appointed to act in the place of Minister Ndabini Abrahams during this period. The President says that the national-wide lockdown calls for absolute compliance on the part of all South Africans. He says none of us should undermine our national effort to save lives in this very serious situation. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Concern worldwide whose 3,900 staff operate in 25 of the world's poorest countries has been helping to address humanitarian crises for the past half century. But its experienced team has never seen anything like COVID-19. As you'll hear from this fascinating discussion with Chief Executive Dominic McSorley, this on-the-ground organization is now deeply concerned about what could happen when the virus really hits healthcare-deficient nations on the African continent. Dominic, you're actually based in Ireland, but your organization is a global one. Concern Worldwide sounds like the kind of enterprise that most people who want to change the world would be involved in. How did you get there and and to become the the managing director? Well, uh, I mean, I guess I grew up in Ireland and I joined this organization um, 38 years ago. I mean, it was founded in response to the famine in Biafra, which was the first televised famine. And so when people in Ireland were watching this famine unfolding on their black and white screens, it resonated across the country, you know, because famine is part of our history. And it produced this extraordinary reaction of people wanting to send aid and send food and send help to the children of Biafra. And as a result of that, that's what uh, Concern started. And I guess I grew up with hearing about Concern and eventually decided as a young 26-year-old, you know, uh, well, I didn't just want to save the world. I wanted to travel the world. So <laughs> it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And eventually, after many years with the organization, uh, I was given the privilege of becoming its uh, chief executive. So it's 50 years old, I see from your website. You must have had some interesting challenges in your 38 years and indeed for the organization itself over that period. I mean, yeah, because the organization very much is focused on two things. It's it very much responds to emergencies, whether it's war or natural disasters, but it stays on and works to try and build up the resilience of communities. So it does both. And I think that's uh, really important in this day and age. And yeah, I mean, much of my time was going from crisis to crisis. So whether it was Cambodia, back in with the Khmer Rouge, going in after that, Rwanda after the genocide. And, you know, yesterday, I think we just marked the um, the 26th anniversary. Kosovo, Iraq, Haiti after the earthquake. 
and that's that's really where uh, I used to go in and and set up teams and and do that kind of response. And I I think that's one of the reasons I stayed with the organisation because I felt it was very grounded. I felt it really wanted to do kind of deliver, but I think it also did in a way that put the kind of dignity and respect of people at the centre of what it does. So we are now busier, uh, unfortunately, than we've ever been, and this latest uh, pandemic is is creating massive massive challenges for us right across the twenty four countries that we work in. I think it's very different from the others. So, you know, I mean, I think it's very rare that you would get a situation where actually our home offices, you know, we have uh, offices in New York and South Korea, in London and the head office here in Ireland. And they are the ones that have been hugely and firstly impacted by this. So we've never been in a situation where there is a scale of an emergency that is global, that is affecting the whole social economic fabric of the countries that we work in and also where we are trying to respond, but then to keep the protection and safety of our staff uh, as a priority. So it, it is unprecedented and it is hugely challenging. You were very involved with the Ebola crisis. What lessons did you learn from that that are able to be applied here with COVID-19? I think the key lesson from that is, you know, around prevention. And in fact, actually, while, you know, the, you know, we have, we have to be very careful about equating uh, Ebola with coronavirus. I mean, Ebola is much more deadly, uh, but harder to contract. But certainly in Sierra Leone and Liberia, and most recently in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the same things about not shaking hands, not touching people, social distancing, and prevention, prevention, prevention. But really, I think the key lessons that we got from that was that um, community mobilization from you know volunteers or whatever is uh, going out and teaching people the basics was really what stopped Ebola. And that's really the similar methods now that we're using across Africa. Remember, it's only on the 17th of February that the last person with Ebola was discharged from the hospitals in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we've now used the same teams that have just basically been redeployed around coronavirus. And I, I, I think there's a lot of thing about there is, well, how do you actually even manage social distancing? How do you refer people uh, across countries where the health systems are totally degraded? But there's a huge amount of prevention work that can and is being done. Take us through some of that, because South Africa has similar challenges, not as desperate as in many of the other countries on the continent. But certainly we have many people who live in confined spaces, who live in shanty towns, and where uh, social distancing, in theory, would be a lot more difficult than in the rich north. And I think the reality is social distancing in many of those contexts is not going to work. I mean, I think the key areas of concern for us are in uh, refugee camps, displaced camps. Look at the Rohingya population. There are 900,000 refugees crammed in on the the side of hillsides. And there is one case that's been reported in the nearby uh, village. Now, what can you do in, in, in those kind of cases is, one, you can increase the amount of water for clean water, increase the amount of soap that people are getting. Social distancing is going to be a problem, but I think what we're now looking at is a shielding. You know, can you get the most vulnerable, those with underlying issues, those that are older, trying to move those into separate areas that are separated away? Not easy to do. That's the kind of approach that we're having to take. You have vast experience in crises. In this one, 
what we're not understanding in South Africa is that it's exploding or mushrooming in parts of Europe and in the United States. But here, it's the growth has been, certainly of the past couple of weeks that we've been in a, a lockdown here, has been very modest, 4%, 3% a day. Is this just the calm before the storm? These are the questions. These are the key questions. You know, is Africa, every country in Africa, going to simply replicate what happened in China or what's happening in, in Italy or the US? And I don't think anybody knows for sure, to be honest. Now, we've had been working with the London School of Tropical Medicine. They have put out a various model and they are saying that most countries in Africa will hit a thousand cases for sure in the next two to three weeks. And that potentially could go up by the middle of May to 10,000. But this is just one model. It's important to listen to these models, to look at various ones, but I don't think we can exclusively lock down on one of them because, as you say, uh, a number of these countries have low cases. Now, Democratic Republic of Congo today has 154 reported cases, but we know that is largely uh, a lack of testing. And there are 90 million people in that country, and there are something like 48 ventilators. So that's an equation that just is not good. And so I, I think we're sort of saying is got to really scale up on the prevention, prevention, prevention side. It may be the strongest. And in some respects, your tools of what you're doing in the West won't be as available in some of these contexts. I think we are just waiting to see. Will it be as bad as everywhere else or will it be different elements that are brought in? And hopefully that will flatten that. We've been paying a lot of attention in South Africa to the research done by the New York Institute of Technology on BCG vaccinations, which are, have been universal in this country, certainly since the 1960s, and, and there were a lot of them done from the 1940s. And it does appear as though the countries where there has been universal BCGs uh, have been less badly impacted than those countries which didn't have them at all, as Italy's uh, uh, United States and so on. Have you looked at this? I've heard of it. I've read some things about it. I think it's encouraging if there is something there. This virus, I think the, the, the danger is it won't probably ever go away fully until we get a vaccine. So any of these things are really worth. I think our bigger concern at the minute is the ability to continue with other life-saving interventions uh, that are keeping people alive. And, you know, whether it's nutrition centers in Ethiopia or in Central Africa Republic, whether it's basic health services, all of those kind of things that are now currently in some cases suspended may actually have a greater mortality rate than uh, coronavirus. And, you know, we see that here in the West, you know, that the, the is the cure economically going to leave democracies wrecked. So I think that for us is is um, a major concern. And we are trying to the best of our ability to adapt programs to continue them and pushing in some of the contexts we're working in to say the kind of work we do is an essential service. Therefore, we have to be, have the freedom to be able to continue to have our offices open, to be able to drive around. You know, providing food is as important as providing nursing care the frontline staff. I hope that the BCG thing proves to be, and it's important that that research is happening. But I guess uh, time will tell. And we have to prepare for the worst. So how are you managing to continue with your essential services, as you say, uh, providing food on the one hand, and secondly, to the medical staff who definitely need, we know uh, from the deaths that have been recorded, this personal protection equipment? 
quite a lot of the stuff that we were doing isn't able to be done, you know, if we're supporting schools and that kind of thing, because they've all, you know, education has been suspended largely across most of the countries we work in. But other areas we're switching. So we do a lot of cash transfers through mobile phones to families that are really experiencing uh, food shortages. And remember, we're quite used to working in war zones where uh, actually insecurity prevents a lot of going out, going into communities. Inside Syria, we're providing water and sanitation to a million people, and we were doing that before coronavirus. But there again, you have a a situation where the conflict has left only 50% of health centers functioning. But you can expand water. You can expand that. We work much more remotely. You can transfer in cash transfers uh, directly into the hands of women so that they have enough to go out and buy food. So that system of technology has advanced very significantly in how aid organizations work, and that's now being used much more effectively. So again, it's looking at what you can do and recognizing what you what you have to give up. Dominic, have you found that as a result of this crisis, your donations have increased, that people are more aware of the need? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, I think, um, you know, in Ireland, and we do a huge amount, the Irish people are extraordinarily generous. They are listed as probably one of the most generous nations in the world relative to the economy and to the size of the population. And people have continued to support us. And I think will, I, I, I do think, uh, you know, the narrative is shifting, as you know, you know, it was China, it's Europe, it's the US, it's New York. It's starting to shift back to Africa or to Africa now. And I think when people start to see that, then they will, I'm absolutely convinced, they will support this necessary work. We're in an interconnected world. And the one thing this is demonstrating is we can't let a problem fester on its own, even if it's five, 10,000 miles away. It will come back to haunt us. Whether it's Ebola, whether it's the refugee migration uh, into Europe in the last number of years, uh, people are acutely aware, whether it's climate change, they're acutely aware of acting together to self-protect. Do you think any good will come out of this whole crisis? I would like to think so. I, I, I think if anything, we have demonstrated in the last couple of weeks that we can move massive obstacles when it is required. Government stepping in, trillions of money. The, the kind of legislation that has gone through demonstrates where we're not seeing this is, you know, the Secretary General Guterres has called for uh, an end to conflict, putting down the guns. Now, some countries, Colombia, Cameroon, even in Afghanistan, are starting to respond to that. But at the Security Council level, which has been the biggest block to say what's happening in Syria, we're not seeing that level of change. And I think this is the opportunity to really drive home very positive changes. In the end, coronavirus itself doesn't discriminate, but inequality, vulnerability, does discriminate. And the poorest and those that have the least access to health care um, will be the ones that suffer the most. And those are in sub-Saharan Africa. So if anything we learn from this is if we don't start striving towards a more equal world, we will then continuously be having the repetition of these problems. And in the in the short term, how do you see this all playing out? If you take a six-month view. 
No, it's interesting you say that because we're just doing kind of these two, four, six month scenarios. We can't think beyond six months. So that is, I would, I'm very concerned about the collapse of economies and particularly in countries like Central African Republic or in Ethiopia or in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, these are fragile economies at best. And I think the potential long-term impact on recovery rate of these uh, is going to be slow. But maybe the bright side of this is this has been the worst, biggest global wake-up call to the world. Much bigger than climate change. Climate change, we know, has gone on the agenda. But there is nothing, nothing so startling as when you're dealing with this at home, whether it's your grandmother, whether it's your relative, whether it's saying it is absolutely bringing home vulnerability and fragility at a level that is unprecedented. And we can only hope that this will bring about a, a level of change that, that will reduce that for those that need it most. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. While South Africa's infection and mortality numbers continue to surprise on the downside, preparations for an expected wave are continuing. This week, Discovery put together a partnership with Capital Hotels to test whether it's possible to turn its empty rooms into confinement areas. Here's Capital's founder and chief executive, Mark Wachsberger. So two weeks ago, we, um, we had isolation hotels where people who were returning from uh, uh, coming back from overseas would isolate themselves for 14 days in our hotel rooms. But we realized that that wasn't a step uh, enough. And Discovery actually made first contact with us, seeing how well we had done in the isolation space to say that they unfortunately uh, are preparing for a huge wave of COVID positives coming. I think that as a country, we're hopeful that that doesn't happen, but they are planning and we are all realistic that unfortunately it is coming. And all those people who become COVID positive are just going to go home to their families and infect their families. And I think that that uh, obviously continues the spread, but it's not good for medical aids and insurance companies either, I'm sure. So uh, as a way to contribute to uh, stopping the spread, we've joined this effort. And of course, that puts our people in our hotel to work as well. So we're delighted to be in partnership with uh, Discovery on this. Mark, it sounds a little bit like you are creating hospitals out of your hotels. Not obviously not with ICUs and so on, but certainly a place where people can recover. Are there are there going to be uh, health care workers there as well? Uh, yes, there's a nurse on site. So we're taking COVID positive but healthy clients only. So it does look like a bit of a hospital, truth be told, Alec. I mean, the protective nature of what we've done in terms of protecting our staff from contracting the virus from our guests is so significant that, you know, they're donned in their gowns, their goggles, their masks, gloves, the booties even. I mean, it really does look like a hospital. But that is to protect the staff. From a guest perspective, it's like staying in a hotel where uh, you have uh, the ability to recuperate simply without infecting uh, anyone else. So uh, you still get, you know, those hotel services. Obviously, the gym's closed, the restaurant's closed, everything's done by room service. But uh, you're staying in a, in a room which uh, you can still continue your work out of. Because remember, this is really for healthy COVID-positive people. These are people who 
they're feeling uh, some of the more minor symptoms, um, but really just stopping the spread. So in other words, they, they are sick, they are positive, but not then let back into society to let the virus spread. So is there connectivity? Presumably there's meals? Yes, absolutely. We provide, included in the rate, three meals a day. And then anyone wanting to essentially upgrade their meals and have, you know, our full room service menu is welcome to do that as well. But, uh, yeah, they have full connectivity, our Netflix, our, um, our wireless internet. Uh, they have balconies where they can get some fresh air. So I think it's really just a case of he has a good place to isolate in a hotel environment. And, you know, there's the nurses are, are on standby. And the minute, uh, you know, they'll check in with everyone every day. The minute there's any sign that their fever is escalating or that they're in any sort of distress, uh, they will then be taken to hospital and then go uh, into the uh, COVID wards in the hospital. It sounds like a heck of a logistical exercise, getting the personal protective equipment, ability to provide food and just getting the nurses on site as well. How did you go about that? Well, that's, that's all thanks to Discovery. I mean, Discovery have been absolutely amazing here. Uh, I think that firstly, this is their initiative that they've started and then they've supported us to roll it out. So it's been our ability to roll out. But with their support in terms of the PPT and in terms of the training, I mean, the training has been absolutely extensive from Discovery to all of our staff. And then, of course, the nursing support. Um, But by the way, uh, this is not exclusive for Discovery members. This is something that's open to everybody who is COVID positive to come to. Uh, It's just that Discovery members are getting a discount. Mark, just uh, tell us about those fees. So, you know, the the room only rates are actually under a thousand rand a night is what we're charging to everyone. And Discovery members get uh, 400 rand off that. So uh, if you think about that, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to keep the system going really for our staff's benefit more than anything. This is not um, a rate that we profit from. But what we have packaged it at is 135 open night for ordinary and non-discovery members, including three meals. The value of those meals is in the region of uh, 350, 400 rand. So uh, room only is under a thousand rand a night. And and then we do have apartments as well where some people will prefer to stay in our one-bedroom apartments, which obviously have a bit more space, and those are 2,000 rand a night, including all the meals. Some people will stay for 10 nights is what we're expecting on average, but we've just had a couple that have checked in yesterday who were towards the end of their COVID-positive stay in the hospital and were discharged, so they'll probably only stay for three or four days. What has the take-up been like? Look, so we just launched yesterday, so we've only had the first trickle of clients come in. But I think that it's unfortunate that we have a projection that in May in particular, uh, this property will be full. I think that the lockdown has worked so well in terms of stopping the spread that there isn't a lot of business now. But who knows when this lockdown ends? When the lockdown ends, you know, all we're saying is let's be prepared that the spread will widen, and let's uh, uh, have this property, the Capital Empire, be a pilot study for how it works that we we roll this out nationally across the country. I think it's just really important that other hotels get on board as well because hotels have an important role to play in stopping the spread. So the idea is really to use it as a test case. Uh, How many rooms do you have? 
So at the Capital Empire, we have 124 rooms. The projections that we've that we've seen is such that you know we'll have national cases in the in the tens of thousands. How many of those will be able to just stay with their family in isolation? You know, there'll be many. There'll obviously be many that won't be able to afford uh, to isolate in a hotel, which we're aware of. And I'm working with industry to find other solutions to bring that price down even further. But, you know, if you think about, you know, there is obviously a, a lot, a lot of cases, and I think there's going to be a national uh, demand for this. And so we are piloting this and putting in a full manual of SOPs on how to operate. And we just want to hand that out to all hotels uh, nationally and say, please do the same. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In some countries, doctors are being gagged and not allowed to give their own account of what's actually going on in the wards where coronavirus patients are treated. But elsewhere, the medical practitioners are taking to social media. Among them is Craig Spencer, a New York doctor who survived the Ebola virus in 2014 and told the world via Twitter that he really fears COVID-19. Spencer shared an audio clip of what is happening on the U.S. theater's front line and added, quote, We will barbecue in the park. We will have birthday parties on the river. Just not right now. Please, stay home. There's really no way to describe what we're seeing. Our new reality is unreal. The people and places we've known so long and so well have been transformed. Our ERs, our ICUs, everything looks, sounds, and feels different. Just one week and it's a whole different world. There are tents outside our hospitals. Every time I see them, I stop, startled. Their drab and dirty flaps seem so out of place against the grand facades of world-class hospitals. Desperate times, desperate measures. The last time I worked in a tent was West Africa. In those same tents, I saw too much pain, loneliness, and death. People dying alone. I never thought I'd have to see or experience that ever again. I, I never wanted to. Once was painful enough. We have no other option now. Our ICUs are filling fast. Our ERs are ICUs. And the patients I normally see are nowhere to be found. Every single person I see has COVID-19. Every single patient. Working in the ER means walking through a corridor of coughing. All a slightly different pitch and different frequency, but all caused by the exact same thing. It's not just the volume of patients that's hitting us. It's the severity. Respiratory arrest. Respiratory arrest. Respiratory arrest. Each takes six to eight professionals, nurses, respiratory techs, ER docs, anesthesiologists. Each takes an hour or more. Back to back. All shift. And it's not just the severity. Back to back. We're all being asked to do things we've never done before. Run a code as your goggles fog and you can't decipher the vital signs on the monitor. Try to predict which COVID patient will crash if you send them home and which won't. Talk to palliative care. Talk to family members. Long discussions about likely outcomes. Listen as family members sob. They aren't here to say goodbye when they ask to withdraw care. We FaceTime them so that they can say goodbye. 
We stop the drips, turn off the ventilator, and wait. Your hands upon theirs. You think of their family at home, sobbing. Someone starts saying a prayer. You can't help but cry. This isn't what we do. You stand by. You wait. This isn't what we do. You stand by. You wait. Time of death, 7.19 p.m. In West Africa, I saw too many people die. Have a long talk with them in the morning. Go have lunch. Come back and they're dead. But this is different. This isn't what we do. But then again, none of this is. I see it on my colleagues' faces. We're tired. We're physically exhausted. Hours in goggles, gowns, and masks feels like days. But we are only at the beginning. The mental exhaustion is only starting to set in. The things we do, the things we see, this isn't what we do. I worry about my colleagues. Every day someone calls me crying. How long will they hold? How long will I hold? I remember how this anxiety gnawed at me every day in Guinea in 2014. Was today the day I got infected? Won't know for a week. The days add up and the worry adds up. I've never seen my colleagues so afraid, so unsettled. But I've also never seen them all work so well together. I've never seen us more unified, more focused, more sincere. Yes, we worry about PPE. Yes, we worry about a lack of medications. Yes, we worry about each other. But I've never seen so much sense of purpose, so much honor to do this job. I think of this when I finally get home. Clothes in a bag, hot shower, look in the mirror. Indentations of the goggles still deep on my face. Blisters on the bridge of my nose. How long will we hold? Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The response to the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's admission into an intensive care unit in London has been mostly positive, but not overwhelmingly so. Bloomberg's opinion editor, Therese Raphael, told PNL host Lisa Abramovich there are now questions about whether 10 Downing Street was as open about Johnson's condition as it should have been. There are moments when it has felt a little bit, um, you know, like, uh, you know, like watching the old Soviet leaders and wondering what's happening. I think what we have to bear in mind is that this virus um, operates in, in sort of strange and mysterious ways. There are cases where uh, uh, a COVID-19 uh, sufferer will be experiencing fairly moderate symptoms that persist and within hours it gets much worse. So it may be that uh, the that Downing Street was putting a positive spin on things, and it may also be that the uh, prime minister, who we know, uh, you know, we know from his biographer that he doesn't believe in illness. He tends to work through illnesses. He doesn't really tolerate it in his staff. That he may have just been pushing himself, not being quite um, 
you know, as as uh, as careful about to, you know looking after himself and resting, and things might have deteriorated quite quickly. I think we're not going to know that for a while. The Downing Street is going out of its way right now to say that they are being transparent. They're updating the media regularly, um, but uh, that's a you know legitimate question, and many here are asking it. Just shifting gears to the continent of Europe, there is some talk about reopening parts of certain economies as the virus does appear to be plateauing when it comes to the count of deaths and new cases in certain hotspots. I'm wondering what the latest is on that. Well, the epidemiological curve is at a different place, or let's put it this way, different countries are on a different place of uh, on that curve, and those that have uh, taken earlier measures or whose um, death rates and infection rates are slowing are now starting to contemplate um, loosening those measures. But it's a very uh, it's a very finely balanced decision because there is no vaccine, as we know. There won't be a vaccine most likely for a while, and there's always a risk that in loosening uh, controls, you see another surge of infections, and that it then becomes harder, as uh, the a team that advises Boris Johnson keeps saying, it becomes harder to reimpose uh, re those controls after people sort of, you know, get a taste of, of having some freedom. So I think we're likely to see this progressing by fits and starts. Perhaps some uh, schools will reopen or certain, um, you know, still fairly essential businesses will be allowed to operate, but not, but people will still be encouraged to work from home and that sort of thing. There's also discussion of issuing immunity passports. So those who have tested uh, positive in the past have had COVID-19 or who antibody tests show um, have had it even if they didn't experience symptoms would be given some kind of certification so that they could use public transport, return to work and communicate to you know, to anyone that they are not um, that they are not infectious, but that depends on uh, getting the disease being a sort of one and done rather than something that can uh, you can be reinfected with in a short period afterwards. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. A recurring theme from the COVID nineteen pandemic is that the world will never be the same again. This is especially true for healthcare. Jamie Metz, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, told our partners at Bloomberg that trends in healthcare that many thought may be decades away are being fast-forwarded now. Soon, patients will have to deal with several layers of artificial intelligence before they get to a physical doctor. So we're relatively quickly going to come to a point where we have more patients and not enough doctors. And so we're going to have to shift so that the, at least the first point of care is going to have to be artificial intelligence, so that if you have a symptom, um, you, you go online and you have an artificial intelligence agent, basically a, a program, and everybody will have a home kit of a thermometer and a scale and a blood pressure cuff and a few other simple things, and you'll put in your symptoms and you'll put in your readings from home, and then you'll get a differential diagnosis. And if it's just um, here are some things you should just stay home and, and have chicken soup and liquids and rest. The AI will tell you that. If you need to be escalated, then the AI will refer you to a telemedicine general consult and then perhaps to a specialist telemedicine consult and only then to a human. So this whole thing now where you feel a symptom and go to the doctor, it's great for normal times, but it's probably not going to be possible in crisis times like this. 
And people, a lot of people have this feeling that what we're experiencing now is kind of like a snowstorm, that it's a big storm, we sit home, the plows come out, plows it, the, gets rid of the snow, the sun comes out, everything melts, and then we just go back to our lives. Old lives that we've had are never coming back in so many big ways. And so this shift to virtualization that we're all experiencing, it's going to happen, it's going to, going to continue, not just in healthcare, but in everything else. When I mean, our companies are taking a beating, they're not going to bring all these employees back in expensive real estate. Uh, across the economy, they we're going to see big, big changes that are going to change the way we live and the way we work and certainly the way we experience healthcare. And on top of that, we're not going to go back toward anything that even feels normal until there's a vaccine. And I know we're hearing this uh, this 12 months as a, as a possibility, but that's the ultimate dream scenario. That's everything going right with an, at an order of magnitude, better performance than we've ever had in, in the history of healthcare. Um, so it could be that it's 18 months, two years, until we're able to be in those same kinds of physical environments. I was doing a Denver radio interview the other day, and I told them that I didn't think it was very likely there was going to be a full stadium NFL football game anywhere in this country until 2022. And these guys, they were planning on you know, going, going to, to opening day later this year. And it, it's, it's re- this is really big change. It's so hard to fathom where we're headed. Right. This has been episode 15 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.